You're listening to the Old Soul Podcast. My name is Ryan Dockery, and this evening I am joined by another best friend of mine, Francis Landrum. Francis is a practicing personal trainer and yoga instructor who is studying to become a physical therapist. I can only hope that you get as much from our conversation about physical therapy, belief systems, and brain development as I did. Thank you for listening, and after you take a listen, if you enjoyed our conversation, please leave a rating wherever you are listening in from. Again, my name is Ryan, and thank you for tuning in to the Old Soul Podcast. No, I, I did. The first thing I wanted to ask you was, what does your Spotify rap to look like? Because <laughs> oh. mine, I think Dixon Dallas was like the, f- I actually saw him in person, by the way. He came to Orlando. The guy who, oh. yeah, yeah, he did, because he has two, he has Dixon Dallas, and then he's I am Jake Hill. I and I, well, I, you showed me the original, the original song that just got me like hooked. I was like, okay. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Keep writing me. <laughs> that's yeah. funny. No, I listen yeah, to a the, lot of music. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the, the cover art with the eggplant on it. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Oh, that guy. I heard that funny. song live. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's like a, he's like, he's a comedian, but he's, he's, you know, obviously a gay um, country writer, which is just ironic because well, the, I mean, the jury is still out because uh, he hasn't said one way or the other. But mm. you know, I mean, that's it true. Doesn't really matter to me. I mean, rah rah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, that was my Spotify Wrapped. Is yours? I imagine. I don't know. I, I didn't actually pay attention to those for the longest time. When I started last year, I paid attention to my 2022 one. And I was like, okay, actually, this is kind of cool because you forget about a lot of the songs yeah. that you've listened to, and you go through mm-hmm. that 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 little story, and it's it's actually pretty neat. It tells you all these stats and everything. I'm yeah. like, okay, all right, I'll join the bad wagon. Let me post this on my Instagram. That's <laughs> pretty cool. I definitely like how much like reflection it can give you too, because yeah, like, for like, sure. Yeah. And then you mean it gives you pretty like in detail that stats like it was like this is the day that you listen to the most music you listen to music for ten hours straight and it's you're just like, like oh my god <laughs> I was like oh shit really <laughs> I mean you know you're doing other stuff while I mean think about it if you go to if you wear your headphones and you listen to Spotify for one hour at the gym every you know at least five days a week I mean shit fifty two mm, times true. five and that's I'll I mean teach. that's a lot of hours. Sometimes I don't, I mean, the raps are not as interesting for me because I will like teach fitness classes and Mm -hmm. I use the same playlist, the same like songs because they're safe, you know, whatever, they're clean, they're neutral in content. And so that's always, always my number three or number two. And it's just like, well, of course it's going to be Anya or Noko Flow because it's like how many times I play that new yoga class in a year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. How many times are you going to listen to that? Well, let me go ahead and give you an introduction. Um, so this is uh, another one of my best friends from school. We went to high school together. Um, his name is Francis Langevin. Uh, he is a personal trainer um, and studying to be a physical therapist. And um, I just wanted to bring him on to talk about his experience with you know fitness and how it's impacted his, um, his overall health and well-being and outlook on life and... Um, Charlie, my puppy, will definitely make guest appearances via audio, throwing her ball around. 
<laughs> but anyways, I'm glad that you were uh, able to make it and probably uh, have you on a couple times because you and I always have really good conversations. It's one of the driving factors. I was like, I need to have Francis on because not it will start. Our conversations always start out in you know a kind of a, a, a topic driven fashion, and then they have this really nice branching out effect where we cover sometimes just everything under the sun and it all feels like ideas it's not you know just talking about people or talking about you know senseless stuff it's it it always has i always leave conversations with you thinking damn that was challenging i had to i had to really put you know my foot on the gas to be able to keep up mentally so i i definitely was happy that you agreed to come on the podcast because i conversations with you are awesome so i'm I'm expecting that same <laughs> intellectual i need to bring it intellectually and i'll try to keep up but yeah thanks for coming on yeah absolutely it's a it's a pleasure that you had me and i'm honored to be on your podcast oh, honored. I think <laughs> My it's, uh, second episode woohoo oh uh, yeah woohoo. <laughs> i also will say on the point of uh kind of just talking is when i was reading I can't remember where I saw it from, but it talked about how friendship, one of the um, biggest points of friendship is conversation. Or it was just saying that pure friendship is conversation because, you know, you really just go about life and you have right. all this internal monologue happening. And oh, qu- oh, quick question on that. Did you – I did not know this until I started asking people this question. Do you think in full sentences? Um. I think, yeah, I mostly I think in full sentences. I also think in conversations, like a lot of okay. my time spent is me thinking about what I'm going to say than what I think someone else is going to say in response and then me then like responding to what they brought up. Okay, got it. Because I full on talk to myself in my head. Yeah, of 100%. course. 100%. <laughs> I didn't know. Some people don't, some people don't have an internal monologue. I had no idea. Sorry to cut you off, but I, that, that, that. That uh, what you said there was I wanted to bring that up because I thought it was yeah. interesting whenever I heard that people don't experience that. What, it's a big um, source of anxiety I'll, for me, oftentimes. Yeah, yeah, probably, or it could have been just a response to the environment when you were pretty young, and it's like, oh, like for now sure. I need to pay more attention to adults in my life because they're not safe, and by not safe is if you do something negative or if you do something that's not good, then. Mm-hmm you can expect to be punished or not catered to, which is kind of messed up because you're a kid and that's right. And which is where I think that formative internal monologue occurs. Um, Another interesting thing is like when I close my eyes and you tell me to imagine a letter, a map, I see nothing. I have no visual imagery that will appear in my head. And so I will just describe to myself like what I think when I think it's just me describing what I know things look like. That is very, it's a very interesting way to recall things because, uh, and I don't know what type of memory you'd call it. And by the way, you know, neither of us are medical professionals or any sort of physical or, you know, licensed mental health counselor. So, you know, there's your, there's your, there's your warning right there. Don't take our advice. If you need help, go get it professionally. But, um, you know, in terms of uh, being able to recall things, and I've always been able to, like, whenever I close my eyes, 
I don't know if like it's kind of like my head in my mind I visualize it so I, I'm mm-hmm. able to like see what it looks like in my head like I can walk down a road in my mind so having that ability not there would be very like so you do <laughs> this is mm-hmm. baffles me how different people's minds work so whenever like if you were trying to give someone directions how would you go about that well, first off, I wouldn't give someone directions because I'm, I, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I've lived in, I've lived in my hometown my entire life and I probably still couldn't get to a new address if you told me. Oh, um, no, I can't do an address at all. Not but I would, I would tell them in the same manner that when you're looking at like your phone and mm-hmm. you have maps and you yeah. can go to the function where it says the street names. So I would just tell huh. you this street leads to this street, which is next to this building turned by the Walgreens onto this road that must be why you're because i will say francis you're incredibly good at remembering for instance all the the ligaments and tendons within the body just to be able to recall that is mind-blowing to where my visually based and image image based mind has trouble with that because if you look at an anatomical you know chart they all they don't they're not really super distinctive to where i can you know distinguish one from the other mentally but whereas having that more linguistic or, or verbal or, you know, um, textual based memory. I mean, that, that must be what's key for a doctor or a lawyer or someone where it's just incredibly memorization heavy, I imagine. Yeah. I would say that, um, like my long term memory, when I commit something to memory, it's, I can almost always recall it, but it takes from my experience longer than most people, especially ones that are more visually oriented because they can just imagine whatever they're supposed to remember in their head and then associate it where I kind of just, I'll like learn a list format or I'll, I'll know sentences. I'll memorize sentences and then I'll just know from that memorized sentence where to place something. And so I'll kind of automatically go through an entire sentence the way I memorized it just to describe one thing because it's it's just kind of kept in there. Yeah. It's just kind of in like it's in your reserve memory all the time or in your in your long it's not in your long term but it's in your short term memory, right? Or do you think it goes into long term? I um I just tend to struggle with short term memory, but like when it's every new. single time you have an experience, you'll go through memory consolidation, which is really what you're trying to do when you sleep is your body will start to store all the information that Mm -hmm. it gathered. And then that's um, kind of where you'll start to see someone analyze data on a neuron level, and the brain will store it in the uh, hippocampus, I believe. And it's called... And then the more times you interact with that subject, the more times you bring it to basically your your waking awareness. Yeah. Your consciousness. And bring it and then it gets stored again. No matter what you do, you bring it to your awareness, it gets stored again. Well yeah, because you're um, it's basically like you're walking down. I, I always think of as, you know, the brain like a series of trails. Mm-hmm. Like your your memory is just if you walk down a path enough it the the trail gets walked over and over and over and over and over again and so it gets ingrained in your memory. Can you no bite she's biting my hand <laughs> but so that's kind That'll of what yeah. my idea of, of memory is but um it, 
for me, I've always been fascinated by, and I brought this up in the last podcast, the idea of neuroplasticity and how the brain changes and it can change. And that, you know, whenever people say, you know, the, the misnomer that, oh, people never change. Like, no, they, they, they literally do. They just don't necessarily change in the way you want them to, but they 110% do change. Um, and some, I do believe some individuals have different rates of neuroplasticity. Some happen a lot faster than others. Some happen more, you know, encompassing of the situation than others. It's just a, a, a you know, everyone's different and how they literally learn and grow and change. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I would completely agree with you. I think we see the changes that can occur, even from someone in an older um, demographic who has any type of injury, um, you start to see neuroplasticity take place mm-hmm. as a result of stroke. Uh, that's why whenever you, we, when talking about stroke patients, the younger that mm-hmm. an individual is, the more likely they'll be able to recover because different parts of the brain can take the load or mm-hmm. bear the weight of what is lost. Well, and even like in the process of healing and how the body actually goes through a specific like physical trauma, because in the last podcast, I talked a lot about mental trauma, but whereas physical trauma, the brain actually does similar stuff in order to not necessarily um, mask pain, but particularly in, you know, the nervous system is able to not like uh, divert the pain to where it's not as extreme all the time. Is that fair to say, or is that something that... Yeah, I would say that the brain, I would say the brain down-regulates pain responses Mm -hmm. because it gets used to a signal, right? If it's constantly being, if it's just like a flat line signal that you're always feeling, um, one thing that will happen is the body will start to reposition itself Hmm. subconsciously in a new way. So you might have, um, like, sorry, Charlie. You might have pain in your arm yeah. when you raise it. The neuroplasticity of the brain and how that impacts healing physically, um, and how absolutely magical it is that our bodies can, you know, in some ways dull the experience of pain or the constant sensation and signal that's being received from a particular portion of the body due to whatever. Um, and then, but still apply it the necessary, uh, blood flow and necessary, um, nutrients that it needs to heal. So I, in that, in that vein of conversation, I wanted to take it to, you know, with your, um, you know, studies to become a physical therapist, how does that, knowledge of, you know, knowing that that's how the brain works and knowing that there are these really, really, really positive and powerful tools that can be utilized to help people go from a state where they may be, you know, really in pain and, you know, um, dealing with maybe even a chronic injury. Um, you know, say someone got hurt, uh, you know, 20 plus years ago and they've been dealing with this nagging pain. And, you know, once again, we're not doctors, <laughs> so we can't, we're not giving pain management techniques. I'm just asking primarily for your, you know, your wisdom on the matter, how, you know, in, in the infinite 22, 23 years that you and I have, <laughs> you know, of wisdom. Well, I would say starting off, um, 
pain, pain management, pain relief is not a linear process. You know, it's gonna, you're going to have worse days, you're going to have better days. Just from how your body feels, it could be the temperature of the weather you're in or how much sleep you had the day prior. Um, Sorry, I hear the Jeopardy music. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, in physical therapy... And I've never done physical therapy, you know, knock on wood. I've, I've never had to. But I've always seen kind of two types of physical therapy patients. And, you know, I've known of quite a few people who have gone through physical therapy. And there are the physical therapy patients that are very militant and vigilant in, you know, performing the exercises and doing them correctly and doing them regularly. And then not only are they doing the exercises, but they may even be doing the necessary. uh, They're doing progressive overload in terms of their um, non-activity exercise thermogenesis. So they're they're neat. They're the amount of movement they're doing outside of formal exercise. They're gradually increasing that as well. You know, I think that a lot of people with pain, it's hard to move. It's hard to face that. You know very real sensation of, you know, being able to move your arm, you know, and and hurt that elbow joint or that, you know, that, that rotator cuff joint and you hit a wall in, you know, how you get that pain in my experience. And, you know, what I've heard is that one of the best things when you hit that wall is to stay there, you know, and, 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 ever so slightly test it, you know, feel like, cause that wall is, and when I say wall, I'm talking about like whenever it's like, Oh God, I can't move it anymore. It hurts really bad. That's the point where you say, okay, that's my limit right now. But your mindset is that I will increase my limit, but you want to increase it ever so slowly, ever so slightly, which, you know, you gradually push that wall back to metaphorically speaking is that, you know, in terms of physical therapy education, and where you're going and the things you're seeing as a, you know, um, and also with your knowledge of the body is that how it, um, occurs, you hit a wall and then you push. Well, starting off, I would say that there's different types of pain. Some are normal to feel in a healing process and some aren't. And it takes a physical therapist kind of um, for a patient's own mental well-being to understand that they're not going to hurt themselves, even though that they do feel pain, even though the body's natural reaction is to stop, um, might be that it is okay. And, I mean, at the end of the day, someone's body is the best indication of what's going on. You feel pain because something is wrong. Something is going on that shouldn't be in the body, whether inflammation or scar tissue buildup, um, or just the actual sensation from the injury itself mm-hmm. can all play factors, and it's hard to tell the difference between them. But if it's been a period of time and you still keep hitting that wall and you not only stop going to that level but decreasing the level because you become afraid of ever getting close or touching that level of pain then you will lose 
the range of motion, which is what you see with patients who go through total knee replacement surgeries, mm -hmm. is you almost within the first few weeks want to get them to at least 90 degrees of flexion of the knee because scar tissue will continue to accumulate and continue to build in that joint, making it impossible for you to ever get past that degree if you just stop. Right. And I mean, yeah. and that kind of brings me to a question because we were, you know, in the course of talking about pain management and how the body, in order for you to have a successful physical therapy in, from what you're telling me and correct me if I'm wrong, the sensation of pain and feeling that pain from that injury is actually a really critical part of the physical therapy process because it's how you, the patient understands where their limit is and how, you know, how much they can push. And so that leads me to the question of, and where the puzzle piece of painkillers and, you know, opioids and strong painkillers, it's not ibuprofen or even ibuprofen and Tylenol, but also things, you know, famous Oxycontin, you know, how does, how, does physical therapy and you know medication pain medication how are they utilized together are they not are they utilized in certain cases and you know would it become more difficult for and i you know maybe this might not be an easy question to answer but would it be more difficult to have a more successful physical therapy session long term like have you know a more successful physical therapy uh, outcome with the inclusion of painkillers, because you don't necessarily, when you're having, when you're taking a painkiller, you don't feel the, that joint necessarily and that pain, which is a very critical part from my understanding of what she's telling me of the physical therapy process. How does painkillers and physical therapy either go together or repel each other? Well, in the beginning, um, really with surgeries specifically, is you're going to be on some type of pain medication just from going through the traumatic mm -hmm. experience of being kind of cut open, something right. stuck into your body, <laughs> yeah. things being moved around because surgery isn't pretty and most people don't really have a concept of what's going to happen and what's going to happen to their body yeah. before <clears throat> ever kind of going through it. Because most of the time it's not an option. It's if you just had a traumatic accident, this is going to be the only thing that we know how to do yeah. at this point with science to save your arm, your limb, whatever bone you broke. Um, and so, of course, you're going to need some form of pain management following that, but you're most likely going to be in an immobilization period where you're not moving, and so they'll cast the arm, you know, if you break your arm, and depending on which bone in the arm you break, they'll limit certain types of movement, and you're not supposed to engage that muscle or that, area because you could injure it yeah. and then the pain obviously there would be extreme probably to the highest amount because you're just re-injuring the body it's not really being a productive experience in any way but when you get to a certain point um where the tissue should theoretically be healed and you always have time frames even today to this point orthopedic surgeons Plastic surgeons will argue and negotiate where they think the time frame is for healing when certain patients can start certain exercises mm -hmm. 
And it's usually not even up to the physical therapist, but based off of the orthopedic surgeon's protocol that they give to the physical therapist. And then that's built on just the scientific body and the evidence that we have regarding someone's recovery rate on the specific surgery that they underwent. It's very, I, so everyone, everyone's different. Every single, every single patient who walks through the door, everyone's body is going to operate differently, but we're going to take the collective knowledge of every single person that's at least submitted responses or that we've tracked the data on. And we're going to say with an elderly patient who's 65 plus, who just underwent a total knee replacement therapy, you should be hitting this number of degrees this many weeks following surgery with this medication because beneficially this is what we see from patients who do this who hit these degrees because you can almost predict kind of where someone's going to be on the fourth week based off of where they're at on the second week hmm that's that's pretty good to know actually and i think my next question is how does and i i love to bring this up but how does diet impact i i can obviously kind of spot the obvious ones you know, if you don't eat, you're probably not going to heal or, you know, and some people, some people say, you know, a good fasting period is actually pretty good for, you know, cellular, cellular um, growth. But in terms of diet coming into play as well, you know, is there any, does physical therapy education enter any sort of dietary realm at all? Right. Of course. I mean, you're going to get that from your primary doctor as well, as well as um, whatever office underwent, uh, undertook you as a patient for the surgery. Yep. But a lot of the times what I see physical therapists recommend is when an individual is obviously extremely distressed, they're not taking mm-hmm. the traumatic experience very well, or they've just been living with pain for such an extended period of time. And so really one of the things of comfort that we can offer is that you have a certain amount of control. Yeah over how much pain you feel, how quickly your healing process will happen, and to what level we can get you at after physical therapy based on what you eat, yeah. based on how much sleep you're letting yourself have, based on how much exercise you're doing. You know, All these things are manageable, mm-hmm. and diet is just one of the ways that you have to Okay, it. all right. So we've got th- – in my head, I'm kind of seeing like three legs here in terms of how to heal the body in the best way possible. And the first is physically. Movement is medicine. That's one of my favorite – I love to, you know, to think about that, that if I have – if I ever, you know, go through a problem where, you know, if I'm my back is sore or something is tight, like I can move and it will fix it. There's other ways. Um, diet. So exercise and diet. And then the last component that I, in my opinion, is probably the most influential on one's progress through physical therapy, through exercise, through, you know, getting the gains, through losing the weight, um, you know, through any sort of physical, you know, biological change process is your mindset and how the conversations you know we talked about earlier about having internal monologue you know the the conversations you have with your head the positive self-talk or the negative self-talk that you are experiencing how that interplays with one's ability to be able to successfully go through physical therapy to see to heal from a traumatic injury and i i i want to ask you is that talked about a lot you see it more on um 
individuals who are competitive on an athlete, like on a collegiate level. So whenever you see athletes, NFL players, um, baseball players go through any type of injury, they're pushing themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're pushing themselves because you don't get to that level of athleticism. You don't get to the NFL unless you have been an individual who constantly pushed themselves. And you've probably been in, had you know, an injury or two <laughs> where you had to do that. And you just – and it, it's kind of like you don't care about what level of pain you're physically feeling because you know that you – they just know to keep going. So how does – Whereas with someone – but I was about to ask, like, how does the I was gonna say, sorry, how does like the the everyday person that isn't you know accustomed to that level of mental you know fortitude is the wrong word, but mental push, how does the you know everyday person take and you know suit up to that level of fortitude, especially with something internal as pain? Practice. Okay. You know, you're not just going to wake up one day. And be able to run three 5Ks. You're not just going to be able to wake up one day and give up all sugar. It's kind of a day-to-day activity that you need to do for yourself. And it's building just the mental fortitude. And I think um, the patience and compassion with, with yourself too, that some days you're not going to be able to hit that 90 degree. Of course. Some days, you know, you're not going to hit a max on your bench and some days you're going to have to, in some ways, partake in cake. You know, it, it, it's, I think that a lot of individuals push the idea of fitness and health to this fringe, you know, where it feels like you can never return. You know, once you're once you're a part of that idea of I I only eat keto, you can't you can't ever return to eating carbs again. And I I think that that's such a disservice to one's actual health, and doesn't set them out doesn't set themselves up well. You know, for um you know a physical therapy situation where they need to be able to fail and get back up. You know, I see you thinking. <laughs> yeah, I caught you off guard there. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to figure out which part of that to respond to. Um, <laughs> it was kind of word vomit. <laughs> with um, with the physical therapy portion. Um, it's almost completely different than going to the gym because you don't necessarily have a choice. Right. I mean, you do have a choice of um, going to physical therapy or not. No one's going to you know, show up to your house and throw you in. Um, but you can't use your hand. You can't turn your shoulder. You can't lift your knee and most people will be pretty motivated to get right. that back. Whereas, oh, I don't know how to do a muscle-up. I'm not going to put in all the work. I may want to do a muscle-up, but in practicality, I'm not about to put in all the work. I don't need it for my day job. Be able to do this because, it's, <laughs> because I don't need it. I don't need yeah. it. You really only need it when you're I'm doing, doing one. CrossFit, Jimmy. You know? <laughs> going for it. And so it's more... It's more... 
I want to be at peace with my day-to-day life. And to do that, I need to, you know, do the physical therapy, take care of myself. And so as coming from a personal trainer perspective, there is more motivation, more like me motivating a client than there would be on a physical therapist's aspect. Because really what they're portraying, what they're giving is more empathy and compassion towards the individual. The individual, hopefully will just show up right. and have the motivation because they want that back. That was whenever I was personal training, um, you know, and I was I was practicing clients, it was always it was never the the problem was never developing the workout or walking them through the workout or making sure mm-hmm. you were scaling correctly. The problem was actually getting someone to believe in themselves enough to be willing to push because I can tell you, Hey, you need to bump that up to 135. But if you're not comfortable with that, I'm not going to force you and stop the workout. If you're not comfortable with going to 135, even though you just did 120 or you just did 125 and you did 130 really well, you just, you, it, it just kind of you lost the belief in yourself when you hit 135. And so I think that, you know, the mental, hurdle once again and the change progression um i, I remember in my um there's sta- well the stages of change right and so people that's a fluid that's not linear either that's a hundred percent fluid people go back and forth in that and, and you know some people hit a mindset where they're so ready to do it they want to do it right now so they do it right now and then they get to it and they realize it's an uphill battle and it's difficult and it's hard and it's going to take some learning and it's going to take all these this you know all this stuff and that their goal isn't within arm's reach but the first step towards their goal is and then it often shuts people down especially people you know individuals who suffer with like ADHD and anxiety especially social anxiety with the gym you know there's a there's a point in time where someone weighs the pros and cons and the benefits of this long-term outcome all of a sudden in no way outweigh the benefits of the short-term outcome of stuffing your face with Chipotle and watching, you know, TV on, uh, on a Saturday night, which I've, I've done, (laughs) you know, I can't say that. I can't, you know, diss that. I love that. (laughs) But so that change progression and, you know, that change cycle that I think some people get stuck in, um, can be one of the, I feel the biggest hurdles for, medical professionals included, um, and fitness professionals to be able to, you know, get people to believe in themselves. I think when an individual approaches the gym, especially as a client, like if they're at the point where they want to hire a personal trainer they think they're going to hate it hmm. because they have hated every experience prior because if they liked it, they would go to the gym. I mean, people who go to the gym go because they enjoy going to the gym. I'm going to say more chances than not. And so on the motivational aspect is I just need to find what parts of this do you enjoy so that you enjoy being yeah. here. I tend to lose clients when I try to give them the most effective workouts that I know will give them the best results. 
because they're most likely the most painful way to go about things. You know, I'm not going to give someone a high intensity exercise, pushing them to the last five reps of complete failure in every single exercise, even though I know that the scientific evidence points to this being the most optimal way of performing physical activity and to grow muscle and to lose fat. But it's not optimal if you don't show up. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's exactly how I trained. It was that whenever I had a client, I focused on the relationship with them. I wanted to make them feel that, um, a safe that, you know, I wasn't going to put them in a position where they didn't feel that they were going to be able to do it, but I wanted to put them in a position where they had the opportunity if they wanted to, but I wasn't going to, you know, present them with something that I didn't think that they could, they could complete successfully. Um, but also I wanted them to do something that they would enjoy that would get them it to that point in a workout where you look at yourself in the mirror or you feel yourself sweating or you feel that burst of um, endorphins where you're like, oh my God, this is actually fun. That that reinforces someone's reasoning while that goes. Because I, I had clients that would come to me not because they were, you know, they wanted to, it was because someone else wanted them to, you know, that they wanted them to take care of it. Um, so that was, uh, that was a whole kind of direction there. Yeah. That, that I was battling with. I think I hear background noise. Oh. Yes. <laughs> All good. It's Ryan. Hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing? It's Goop. Yeah. <laughs> and Star. Um, I would say really as a personal trainer is I just need to, I mean, obviously I'm a personal trainer. I'm going yeah. to enjoy the gym. I need to, in some way teach them how to yeah, also enjoy for sure because when you hire a personal trainer you're not hiring someone no one can lift the yeah. weight for you right i can tell you the best way to do it i can tell you how i would do it but you at the end of the day have to do it yourself um and so you're really just hiring a personal trainer to show you what they love about totally. the area yeah. like if i if i hire a dancer if i hire a dance instructor yeah, I might want to learn how to salsa, but I'm really just hiring you to teach me how to enjoy right. this activity. That's 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 actually that's a great way to look at it. I gotta say, because if you don't, as you said earlier, if you don't enjoy it, there's no way in hell you're going to actually progress. So, yeah. Any any final thoughts on that before I I do one hell of an ungraceful pivot towards a different topic? <laughs> No, all good. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, the the next thing I wanted to talk about, actually, we touched on before we even started recording, was belief systems. And you know, um, one of we both went to Catholic school, and I t- I've talked about my Catholic school experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I didn't have a I didn't have a bad Catholic school experience, but religion was a very present piece in my life, and belief systems were a very present piece in my life, and I wasn't. I didn't carry those forward. Uh, you know, I got to college and shit fell off the wall <laughs> in terms of that. I, I, I totally, um, I, I, <laughs> I stopped looking for, for God. And I, I, you know, so to, we were talking about Buddhism and the eightfold path and, and how the root of all suffering is desire. And that was kind of the thing that I, you know, I also believed and I found 
and I, 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 I'm not a practicing Buddhist. It's not something that I ever tried to tried to go for. It's too confusing for me to, yeah, it's hard to, it's, it's difficult. Well, I mean, I guess if you took an Easterner and started <laughs> Christianity, none of it would make sense because they don't have yeah. the cultural, they don't have the cultural knowledge or just the background to be able to take. It would take one hell of a primer probably. to be able to get so I know, think the up same. to speed. Yeah. Right. But what were we talking about? Um, I can't quite exactly remember. Um, I would say opinions. Oh, think, right. Um, we were talking about filtering information. I, I'm a, I don't know. I'm just a firm believer on the more malleable you are to any topic, any and everything, the more at peace you will be. Explain just that further. In general, right. Because if I, if I know someone talking to me about Catholicism, is going to make me upset, um, then I already have that primer. You're coming I've already to the table primed with that. my thought process. I've already, I've already primed my nervous system to respond yeah. in a negative way, right? And so now I'm going to categorize you into a stereotype because oh, you're a religious person. You obviously don't believe in this or that, or you must not agree with me on these points. And so I think the tendency for people becomes looking for the parts of us that are uh, mm-hmm. in opposition of each other rather than maybe saying, I don't agree with you on one thing, but I agree yeah. with you on 10 others. And so when you get to that point where you firmly believe in really your opinion or just you think that really, if you even believe that an opinion just that you have, it can be 100% correct, then i Right, you're, you, you've you got the whole point yeah, no of the conversation would. The whole point of this conversation would be to share my experience. But if you're going to just invalidate my experience, there's oh, no exactly. point in this conversation. And you know that going back to you said that and, um, you know your brain wants to put things in certain categories, and that's exactly like our brains. I was watching a Kurtzkagat Kurtzkaz I can't say the word Kurtzkagat video. <laughs> Have you you've heard of that of that channel right on YouTube? Kurtzka's got it's with the globe and it's like really animated. It's really cool. It's got some amazing ideas um, and theories and explanations of real, real, hundred percent real things. And one of the th- one of the videos recently published is about how our the intake of social media and the intake and and how the internet is impacting our brains and our ability to think. And and the the primary premise was how social media's impact is not what we originally thought it to be that the whole idea of um, right. influence bubbles and how you can't that your your the algorithm is serving you up the same thing to keep you trapped in this influence bubble but in in reality what the video goes on to say is that on the internet you're exposed to a significantly higher portion of um challenging ideas and and alternate perspectives than you are in your actual circle in real life and that was a very very dichotomous uh, idea that i had not thought about i because i 100 percent believed in the influence bubble fallacy there that that social media traps you in this algorithmic you know loop when as he as the video is explaining it it's not that it's keeping you in a loop 
it's that whenever you take that information out and you, you see, you know, you talk about these things in your little sphere, it either gets reaffirmed or not. And then whenever you go and you react on the internet, it either reaffirms those beliefs or it, you know, it goes and challenges them. Um, and we react with anger because we can on the internet. It's easier to react with anger, uh, cause you're behind a keyboard. So that was kind of, it was very interesting to see how our brains are changing or trying to change, you know, but we, evolution's very slow. Um, you know, they're trying to digest this massive amount of opinions and data and then try and figure out how to store that in an ancient system built on tribalism. Because that's what we had to do as, you know, primitive creatures. We had to figure out you're good, you're bad. That was it. You know, and then we put things in bubbles because that made sense. But now everything is, we're in one giant town square. And that makes things really difficult when everybody's talking all the time. It's just crazy Um, how different. If for just for one moment, if anybody, if literally anybody, just for one second. Right. Yeah. If if anyone could just all of a sudden go to stillness. And, and really, I feel like that's where I've just come to the point in my life is I would rather be right to just be quiet, you know, because no matter what you say, you could be Albert Einstein telling the world about equals MC squared squared. Someone's going to say you're wrong. Someone's going to be someone's going to be upset. as is someone's good scientific method. But and no matter what you say and no matter what you say, someone will agree with you. Someone will love what you just said. Someone will think it's the most profound thing that they've heard maybe all day. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say that there's like the influence bubble because I don't think that the internet is at that level yet of being able to predict exactly what you want. I don't know. My TikTok feed has got me down. You look at advertisement. (laughs) It knows that I'm going to buy that tank top. (laughs) If... But on the videos, on the videos where you don't think, like on the videos where you actually just don't show interest, yeah, you immediately scroll past. So you have a skewed perception of how much information they're actually getting correct on you because you're only watching the videos you agree with, right? So if I see a talk and a politician is speaking or, you know, whatever, they start saying things they don't agree with, I'm scrolling past it. And then if I see a talk on a politician that I agree with, I might stop and watch and listen and be like, oh no, he had a lot of good points, but it's because I already agreed with the points in the first place, which is why I don't watch those anymore right. either. Well, and I scroll past both mm-hmm. because, because no matter who you are, there was always a group of people who watched the first video that I don't agree with. And there were always people who slid past it. Same with the second. And really, I don't think those videos exist to give information. I think they, they exist, exist to, to create ads. those groups. To, yeah, to drive those people to come to polls, to feel more engaged, to, you know, like you just want, you want to feel heard, you want to feel validated, and you do that by Well, and unfortunately, one of the most 
potent emotions that we, well, not unfortunately, it's unfortunate how it's weaponized, but one of the most potent emotions that we have is anger. It mm-hmm. drives action because there's, you know, whenever you're sad, you cry. Whenever you ha- you're happy, you, you know, you smile. Whenever something's funny, you laugh. Whenever you're angry, what do you do? You, you act. It's hard to not get up and run or, you know, take it out in a boxing bag or, or do something. So whenever you're angry, the first instinct is to act and to, you know, go to the, you know, try to prove them wrong and, and forget their humanity and forget your humanity in the same point and forgetting the the thing that trumps it all. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it absolutely does not change outcomes. And that that's one of the reasons why for me, political conversations in terms of any form of politics, um, they, it no longer makes sense to me. It no longer makes sense to have a conversation about something that neither mm-hmm. you or I have any impact in. And I'm not talking about civic engagement. You Vote. Go vote. It's important. And it does matter. But in terms of right now and, and you know, metaphorically fixing the world's problems by talking about something and, and getting into a fight and, you know, getting all heated and angry, that's all it does is just raise our blood pressure and make us not like each other. So I, in my opinion, I just bowed out of political conversations, just like you said, because it's not something that is actually beneficial to either of us, and it only leaves us in a worse place. Right, but if I were to immediately I would disagree with that, and if I were to say your opinion of not having a Right, and I would be like, dumb. well, you know, so right. what? You're dumb. <laughs> Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I can say, oh, you know, it's your opinion. I can point the finger at two people on either end of a political party spectrum and I can say you're just arguing at each other and it's kind of ridiculous. I have a third party who's looking at me and saying, look at you pointing at these people saying they're ridiculous because you still have an opinion. And that opinion is that they're doing things that they shouldn't and you're doing things that you shouldn't. And so it's like, what, what do you do? Right. Um, I think the Buddha said it. One of the first things he ever mm-hmm. like taught or wrote or spoke to an audience the was the mind is a trap. That's a new one. I haven't heard that. Right. And then he says, so then they'll usually talk about desire and how desire causes suffering. And the student will come to the master or the wise guru and they'll say, master, you know, I have all this suffering in my life. How do I get rid of it? And they say, well, you have to stop desiring. You have to not want more money. You have to not want to feel better because the fact is that you don't. And it's the desire that's causing you to suffer. So then the student leaves and thinks about it for a few weeks and then comes back and says, so I try to stop desiring. desiring desiring. (laughs) I try to, but then you're desiring to stop desiring. And so... The student goes, what do I do? And that's where you get the middle path. That's where like the middle path for Buddhism comes into play because it's like, you can't. You can't. At least an unenlightened individual, according to Buddhism, can't. You know, The enlightened one is the awakened one who is fully aware of themselves, fully aware of you know, their effect on the universe and the cosmic web. Um, and so they can be unbothered without desiring not to desire because they don't desire. So it's kind of the 
a paradox that you have to enter. And so I think of it sometimes when I view opinions, because I can say, oh, it's your opinions of things that are causing you to suffer. But then I can all, that's an opinion of mine, you know? But don't, aren't you desiring to that's have That's still an something on I'm it? going to tell someone. Um, I'm not desiring to have an opinion on it. I would say I would rather not. Then aren't have you an desiring to rather it, not have an opinion on it? Which would then be the desire. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right. And there's no, there's no getting out of it. Right. So then I look at those things. I look at two people arguing. And I, the immediate thought might be to judge. Right. Oh, look at you two bickering. But then that's when it takes kind of the why do I take your ego. feel the need to judge these individuals? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to separate yourself. And then you saying that, you looking at what just caused you to be upset or you looking at your, inice, your initial response yeah, and viewing it, being able to say, oh, that's funny. That thought normally – makes me feel bad about myself because I ate a french fry and I was just for a second there was upset with the fact that I broke my you know my diet and the response is to be upset with yourself but then you can just observe that immediate response because you're not your your act you're not your thoughts that's I think something people you're not um that I've talked to get caught up in is that their identity is so wrapped into their thoughts and, you know, it really begs the question, well, where do your thoughts come from, you know, and how does that stream of consciousness begin? But one of the things that you that came up in my mind in talking about the ego was just how intrinsically weaved the ego is in a lot of the things that we do. And one of the things that I have noticed the ego plays a part in is grief and loss. And how one of the elements in why loss feels so painful is because it's something we no longer have, you know, whether it be a person or an item or a pet or a situation, we no longer have it in some, in some way that impacts our, our vision of ourselves that we're somehow lesser for have, for not having that thing. And, you know, I think there's a, um, uh, either a parable, it's more of the Christian saying, but a, a teaching of the broken glass where, yeah, where yeah, the broken vase. whenever something comes into your possession, like that vase, in order to really enjoy its full beauty and its full majesty, if you will, you have to also remember that it will one day not exist it will one day not be there and i think that the jump the the initial reaction is oh my god it's so morbid i was talking with you know andrew my partner and i said i freaked him out because i said we were watching tv or something and i said i am so happy that you're here and that we're in this moment because and this isn't exactly how I said it. I can't remember how exactly how I said it, but I told him I said I'm so happy and I'm I'm feel so happy right now because I know that one day I won't be able to watch another episode of this show with you. And I won't be able to you know, it hurts even right now to think about that. It, but that's what makes our time together feel so special. 
And that's just something that having that vase break teaches you. It sucks. <laughs> it's painful. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just it's the suffering that's caused by change. And I think coming to an acceptance that there is impermanence. We're temporal beings, you know. We're going to exist right. in time and time will just keep moving. No matter what. And there's nothing that you own, have, are, that will not die. Right. At some point, our universe will fade and, you know, cease to exist just as just as a rubber band comes back, you know. And I I don't know. Oddly, whenever I first first wrapped my head around those beliefs, I think I slipped into quite a depression (laughs) because it was this really mammoth understanding of the world. And I mean, it was everything you look at. The first thought is, you're going to die one day. <laughs> you're not going to be in my life. Like the, the the initial reaction is to see the loss, right? Is to see just how much your life will be worse off without that person in your life. So the reasoning and the logical next step and the self-protective next step is to say, well, I'm not going to engage, period, because I know that you're going to hurt me one day. By not being in my life, whatever it is, an espresso machine or a person or whatever. But as you continue to run through that process, as you continue to see things in the way of when they depart your life, you begin to recognize that there's actually a really powerful grace that comes with that and that you begin to cherish things more and the little things all of a sudden become so much more important and the big shit that irritates you, you know, going to work and, and, and having to pay a bill or having to take the dog to the vet or, or doing all of these things that used to cause like mental anguish or like it's actually just a part of – it's a, another beautiful part of this experience I have with you. Right, I mean, right. Eventually, that job won't be there. So, what can you do about it right now? What would you do about it if twenty years from now you know you're Mm -hmm. leaving that job or you know you're going to be fired? What do you wish that you would have done when you did have that job, and what's stopping you from doing it now? It's kind of freeing in that aspect because freeing is the right word. You have. Yeah, no, no, no control, you know, because it doesn't exist. You know, the future that exists in your head isn't real. It's just thoughts. And so the quicker you gain control of the present moment, the more control that you'll have. The more long-term peace and happiness I think you'll have as well. Because you stop worrying about all the shit that you thought was important. Yeah, uh... I'm saying control. I would, I would, I think a more appropriate say is like a re- relinquish of the control or the relinquish to even desire a certain outcome because you just realize that not that it doesn't matter, not yeah, that things don't that. matter, um, but that you can decide if it matters to you. Well, and you can also control the threshold to which it affects you. Because you're not necessarily like it's like you put everything in an outside in a bubble. Like if you're the middle target of a you know bullseye, you put everything 
in that second ring where all of a sudden now you can say, you know, that situation that would have caused me a, you know, a crazy amount of anxiety and internal stress is now my choice whether or not I want to allow it to do so or not. And if I do want to allow it to do so and allow it to exist in my life and to allow it to have an impact on my life, then I choose the degree to which it does so because that is now my prerogative as I've become aware, as it always was. But at some point you look at it and you go, oh, right, I do have that ability to say, "Mm, I'm going to let you in, but I'm going to remind myself of your station and that I can let you impact me emotionally I can let your anxiety become my anxiety or I could keep your anxiety at you know in your space you don't need to respond you don't need to you don't need to let anything affect you I think I'll go back to the example of if it's raining outside you know and you're getting soaked and you're looking around and everyone's like mad and upset and like just so irate by the rain and being wet and you're the only one there who's happy i think so that for me brings more fulfillment and satisfaction out of the present moment because you don't let something completely normal or even experiencing something that could be good for you be something that turns into a negative i will beat this dead horse that the only thing that we have control over and I said I said this before we started recording the only thing we have control over in this present in this life is our reaction to the present moment and it, it, you know it's cliche it's you know whatever you could say it a million times but I mean that's the truth I, I have no control over anything else in my life besides you know my reaction to the present moment uh, shoot any moment now, the lights the lights could go out for whatever reason. And when I say lights, I mean the universe, you know, and the lights. And I don't know, power company. But I don't know. Having I don't know if there's a theory or there's a you know some form of um, I don't know thought experiment that shows that the inherent knowledge that something will cease to exist in your life gives that thing value or gives that someone value gives that situation value I, I imagine there's got to be something but it it is very comforting and it's gives me personally and you just said great peace to know that you do have control over that reaction no matter what situation is present All right. <laughs> Good to go? All right. Well, I know I'm getting kind of Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you for bearing with the technical difficulties at the beginning. Um, thank you for stopping in and, and having this conversation. We're going on an hour and 12 minutes minus the probably the 10, 5, 6 minutes for Charlie's interlude there in the, beginning, in the middle. But, um, yeah, thank you for uh, having this conversation. And uh, I, I would love to do this in person next time. Um, whenever you're whenever you're in town, so let me know, and we can uh, have more deep conversations, more old soul time. I'm starting to call it. 
Yeah, I think it's fun. I right. think I need a couch. I think that's what I need. So I need a microphone and a couch, or maybe two Let's ferns. Stick I've me between two ferns. Just get your ass over here, and we can we can record. <laughs> All right. But it was Me fun. Too. I'm I, excited to see where this goes. Yeah, Good. we're definitely gonna best have of luck. Yeah. In the future. But anyways, thank you, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs> All right, bye. I'll see you, Ryan. <laughs>